Okay, so um, uh, I'm here um, uh, talking to Professor Keyes about the um, article that was uh, published in uh, February's Addiction Journal, and that is uh, assessing the impact of alcohol taxation on rates of violent victimisation in a large urban area. Um, would you uh, like to start off just uh, summarising the paper uh, for listeners? Sure. Um, so what we have done in this paper is set up an agent-based model of New York City. And what an agent-based model is, is a mathematical simulation where we set geographic bounds um, scalable to the, um, to the size of New York City. And then we embed those geographic bounds with agents, with, which are just mathematical points. Um, okay. And those agents, we then uh, we, uh, assign rules for how they can move how they can interact with each other, what happens when two agents interact, how the um, other layers of the model uh, influence agent behavior, and then how agent behavior then influences the environment around them. Um, and it's a really flexible approach that can be used to model all kinds of behavior. So agent-based models have been used for a long time in infectious disease because we know okay. that to transmit flu, you need to come into contact with someone and you need to have that direct transmission. So building mathematical models of communicable diseases has been a central part of um, sort of epidemiological surveillance for a long time and now is increasingly being moved into these other health outcomes that haven't been typically characterized in these mathematical models, but um, do involve the interactions of people with each other. And violence is a really good example of that, because in order to be the victim of violence, you need to come into contact with a perpetrator. So what yeah. we did was set up this model of New York City. We allow the agents to come into contact with each other, to commit violence against one another. Um, and we parameterize that model with the probability of being a victim and a perpetrator of violence um, based on existing studies that we have available to us. And then once that is all set up and calibrated, then we can introduce interventions. And so then we can say, all right, given that we know that, you know, we, we have this sort of map of violence in New York City occurring and we've calibrated it to what we know about the rates of violence in the city, what would happen if we instituted a range of different types of interventions? And those interventions can be at the individual level, um, you know, they can be at the community level, they can be at the city level, and we can play out what happens in the model based on those hypothetical scenarios. What's great about an agent-based model compared to observed data um, is that we can model ranges of uh, interventions that have not yet occurred. We can model them at doses that are unfeasible to test in real life. <laughs> Um, uh -huh. And so we can kind of place bounds on what, you know, how much of an intervention would you need to, you know, introduce into a population if you wanted to bring rates of violent victimization down 10%, 20%, 100%. You know, you can, yeah. the, the model allows you to be imaginative in, okay. in, your, in your understanding of how you can influence these different public health outcomes. So, so when you when you um, when you run the model, uh, these these simulations, how does that um, how does that look? Are you are you running that through um, statistical analysis software? Or is there specialised software for running agent-based models? What's your kind of 
you know, do you click and drag parameters or do you kind of manually enter different uh, different data and and run tests on it? What's what's your interaction with the data when you when you do this? Yeah, I mean, it it it, it mostly involves a series of differential equations where mm -hmm. you know, for every single behavior in your modeling, you create a predicted probability um, of you know, for example, drinking. Um, and even beyond drinking, you know, so then you have a predicted probability of being a drinker and that's based on existing data. So we take existing data sources and we put in all of the risk factors that we think are involved in being a drinker, age, gender, you know, all kinds of demographics. And then beyond that, um, anything else we can bring to it. Um, I mean, I think this highlights one um, key characteristic of agent-based models is that there's no magic here. You know, we are deciding what the risk factors are, you know, so it, yeah. so it involves a lot of assumptions. Um, uh -huh. And then we have just these predicted probabilities of every single behavior. Um, so, you know, with drinking, then we also include the probability of being a beer drinker versus a liquor drinker versus a wine drinker. We include the probability that you like to, you prefer to drink alcohol on-premise versus off-premise, all, all those kinds of different yeah. scenarios. And then we then embed a second layer of predicted probabilities of, um, of the agents, you know, in a small, we say, okay, at each time step in the software, we can model the probability of agents coming into contact. And then, huh. so an agent is looking around a particular radius for another agent. When that agent has a, has other agents in their radius, then all of them have a probability of being a perpetrator and a victim of violence. And then we embed, you know, just random <clears throat> components to say, all right, if two people have a high probability of being a victim of violence and a perpetrator of violence, then a violent event is going to occur at some probability that we're assigning to it. Yeah. So all of that I, gets I, embedded in a series of differential equations in the model. And I, I, I particularly like the bit where, um, uh, there was the probability of violence if if agents met each other, uh, unless there was a a police agent within yeah. two cells radius. It, it, I, I really enjoyed. It sounded like a a fun thing to model, like this kind of random police agent that's going around and either preventing violence right. or impacting on those outcomes. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly yeah. how we did it. Which you know, again, it's it's no model is going to be able to model all of the all of the complexities of real life of walking down the street. Yeah. Um, you know, just because a police agent is there or not there doesn't always determine whether a violent event occurs. But, you know, within the bounds of the model, you can kind of make some general assumptions um, yeah. about the way in which that would occur. And we use that based on existing sort of criminological literature and theories about um, kind of how everyday violence occurs. Another important part of our model that we're now expanding in, in other models is that this is largely... Um, you know, it's not family-based violence. It's not interpersonal violent events. It's really yeah. two agents who are not necessarily um, connected within a family structure engaging in a violent event. Yeah. Um, okay. The the other part um, that um, I thought I thought sounded like hard work. Actually, um, you said um, there was something about. I, you ran it for 140 iterations to get stability, mm -hmm. some, somewhere around there, and then at which point you were able to then run it for the uh, you know year on year um, for, for you reported. So, what, what kind of um, issues did you have to adjust for in that process to to get the model to be stable, um, and, and what kind of instability did you have to adjust for? I suppose. Um, 
That's a good question. I mean, the instability in general is that especially for events like homicide, you know, those are relatively rare events. So you'll often, you know, in, in each model run, you're allowing just random components to your everything is being drawn from these sort of random distributions. So you can have a lot of model runs where you have no homicides. You have a lot of model runs where the homicide rate is much greater than the homicide rate in New York City. Um, yeah. But, you know, just like in any statistical analysis, if you run it enough times, you achieve some level that hopefully calibrates to what the actual homicide rate, I mean, we, we make it so that it matches the actual homicide rate in New York City. But there's tremendous amount of variation higher or lower than that. So you really have to run it a lot of times so that you have enough model runs to take kind of the average of it to get um, what you think the actual prevalence of homicide is in New York City. Yeah. Um, and and having having kind of established a, a model which has this level of stability, are you then are you then able to use the model that you've created to adjust other parameters and run other um, either alcohol or violence related studies on there? I mean, is that kind of a big piece of work from which many um, many tests can be run, or do you have to kind of start again? A little of both. Um, okay. You know, every time we kind of introduce a new research question into the model, it takes a new set of calibrations, you know, so anytime you're introducing a new component into the model, it has to, everything has to be recalibrated against everything else. It actually takes a lot of time. I think when I started doing agent-based models, I thought, well, you know, we are not collecting new data. We're just playing around with simulated <laughs> agents, you know, should be, should be relatively straightforward. And it's not at all. It actually has taken, a, I would say, a longer time to get a what we think is a, a good agent-based model than it would be to you know collect a new cohort study <laughs> <laughs> it is it's really difficult and you know I'll, we give a lot of kudos to our team of agent-based modelers you know it's not just kind of one person it takes a lot of people to you know gather all these data we use a ton of different data sources and then spend a lot of time running the model over and over and over again and tweaking little components and every time you change one thing everything has to change and so it it's a lot of effort yeah <laughs> yeah um okay so moving uh, moving on to the uh, your findings so yeah. um so you found that there there was a relationship between Alcohol taxation, you tested, was it 1%, 5% and, or an increase of 1%, 5% and 10% yeah. alcohol taxation? Yeah, so we, we um, simulated a whole range of different alcohol taxation levels. And, um, you know, I think what was not a surprise, you know, alcohol taxation among the different policies to reduce alcohol use, alcohol taxation is one of the more well-documented interventions. Um, and in, in the United States, there's not only a lot of variation in alcohol taxes by jurisdiction, but um, there's, there's a lot of evidence that there's been very little change in alcohol tax taxation over time. And in fact, there's been an erosion of the effect of taxation as um, taxation doesn't keep up with inflation. Um, okay. So we thought alcohol taxation was a really interesting policy to model in an agent-based modeling framework. And so we modeled you know, one, five and 10% universal alcohol taxation. So we just increase the price of alcohol. And then we use existing uh, reviews and meta-analyses of the price elasticity of um, consumption with, uh, with taxation um, and other price increases to determine in the model, okay, if we increase taxation by X amount, meta-analyses and reviews suggest to us that 
consumption is it going to decrease by Y amount? And then the other thing we tried to do in the agent-based model, you know, so, so we didn't need an agent-based model to say that taxation is going to have an influence on consumption. We assumed that that was the case. But mm-hmm. what we did in the agent-based model is to, is to kind of combine all of the existing data sources that we have to allow that price elasticity to change by beverage type, um, by level of consumption, so whether you're a light consumer or a heavy consumer, and by income. So we took those kind of three parameters together and allowed the, tech, the elasticity to change across all of them in order to kind of arrive at a number, which was, all right, let's say we want to reduce violence by X amount. How much taxation do we need, okay. actually? Um, so we modeled that. Um, we focused on universal alcohol taxes. And then in the paper, we also focused on beer taxes because that has the biggest yeah. impact on, um, on drinking across all the different beverage types. Um, and so what we found was that even sort of a modest increase in universal alcohol taxes could not only decrease alcohol consumption, but also decrease alcohol-related violence. Yeah. I think that's an important piece of it. Um, so what's, uh, what's next? I mean, um, are, you, are you working on your next model, uh, next simulation model already? Um, mm-hmm. uh, what's the kind of follow-on research from this piece? Yeah, we just had another simulation study come out on um, alcohol outlets. Um, And so kind of the way people are spatially arranged around places to purchase alcohol. um, And we modeled a series of interventions around um, alcohol outlet policy, you know, how what the density of policy is in various neighborhoods and how that influences consumption. So that just came out last month. Um, um, And then our goal is really just to expand even further what we're doing. You know, basically our agent based model right now runs relatively crudely over one year timeframes. Um, but there's a lot of agent based models that are being developed right now that really do minute to minute interactions, you know, just taking someone through their entire day, going to work, going to school, going home, um, the actual roads that they operate. Um, and so we're now partnering with a number of different other, uh, modeling platforms and modeling groups that are doing that and, and hope to embed, um, these kinds of projects that we're working on around alcohol-related policy, firearm-related policy, and now we're expanding to um, other substance abuse policies as well. We want to model the effect of marijuana policies, which in the United States are rapidly shifting in a lot of different states. And there's a lot of suggestion that um, these new marijuana policies are going to have all kinds of effects, not only just on marijuana use, but also alcohol and other drug use and also things like opioid use. Um, but we can actually model that in the agent-based model with relatively good data. So now we're just kind of expanding out what the bounds of what we're thinking about are to these other kinds of modeling platforms and other kinds of modeling questions. Wow. Uh, sounds, sounds amazing. Uh, do, do you, is there an opportunity there with um, things like cannabis policy to where things are changing um, in a very specific way? Is there an opportunity there to... Um, to run a, a simulation of what you think will happen when a policy comes in and compare it to what does happen when the policy comes into, you know, the kind of calibration yeah. way. Is, is that something that, that you do? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's absolutely what we're trying to do is sort of um, there, there's a number of different roles, I think, for agent based models in that space. And one is kind of prediction of what will happen compared to what did happen to build a better model. Um, But one thing that's really great about the agent-based model, I think, is in determining what the mechanisms 
are, what the plausible mechanisms are. Because we have all these data where it's like, we know exactly when the policy kind of turned on in a state um, compared to when it wasn't on. And then we have this observational data on, on what happened after that, you know, rates of overdose, rates of um, non-medical uh, cannabis use, for example. But we don't really know why it, in a lot of circumstances, um, the change in a law would influence one type of outcome. So what we can do in an agent-based model is say, all right, here's three different options for how um, cannabis laws would influence an outcome. Um, how plausible are they? How many agents do we need to convert from a cannabis user to an opioid user, for example, or vice versa, in order to have a population-level influence on things like opioid-related harm? Um, so that's something we can do in the model. Fantastic. It sounds, it sounds like amazing work. Um, yeah. is, there, is there anything else that you, that you want to add before we... No, I mean, I think the only thing I would add um, to this paper in, in terms of alcohol taxation is, again, to underscore um, how important price is as a determinant of alcohol-related harm. You know, I think that, that sometimes um, we, can, we can focus on sort of individual-level mechanisms of why some people drink it, why some people don't, why some people get alcohol-related harm and other, others don't. But it, these broad-level policies, you know, there's been uh, 50 years of alcohol policy work that has really honed in on um, the influence of these population-level policies. And alcohol taxation is, is just time and time again um, among the most effective means of controlling alcohol-related harm in populations. And I think what you know, this study is not reinventing the wheel in that we're showing, yes, modest, sustained, uh, you know, evidence-based alcohol policy with respect to price um, can really reduce alcohol-related harm in population. So I think that I would just kind of underscore the conclusion of the message is that policymakers and advocates should pay attention to um, how we can uh, change the conversation about um, alcohol price. And uh, hopefully this paper adds to that body of literature.